welcome to the first episode of season three of Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm Darren Evans, the managing director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. As always in this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all varieties about the process of bringing new plays into the world. We are kicking off the third season of Typecast with something a little more eldritch. I am here to welcome M. Sloth Levine and Josh Glenn Caden, the writer and director, respectively, of Company One Theater's latest offering, the Interrobangers. Set in sleepy, foggy bluffs, New York, four groovy teens and their mutt embark on a tumultuous adventure confronting ghouls, aliens, and their own chilling past. Not just a riff on a certain Saturday morning cartoon, The Interrobangers is a queer coming of age story about exploring identity, creating community, and finding that men in masks are the scariest monsters of all. Our first guest today is writer M. Sloth Levine, a playwright, designer, and director based in New York. Sloth has written The Castle of Ghoul Hammond and How It Fell into the Void, Nosferatu the Vampire, and Conflict Resolution in Cabin 6, part of the YouTube anthology series Tales from Camp Strangewood, for which they were also the co-creator and showrunner. Their play at Hotel McGuffin won the Parody Development Award from Parody Productions. Their works have been developed at the Roundabout Theater Company, Company One Theater, Sparkhaven Theater, Central Square Theater, Tufts University, University of Massachusetts Amherst, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Parody Productions. Welcome, Sloth. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Next up, we have Josh Glenn Caden a director based in the Boston area who is currently the artistic producer and casting director at Company One Theater and is a co-producer of the Legion Theater Project. He has developed a number of artistic projects at the ART, Company One Theater, Fresh Ink Theater, Flat Earth Theater, Artist Theater of Boston, the Museum of Science, UMass Amherst, Wellesley College, and Hub Theater Company of Boston. Josh is also the director and co-producer of the Legion Tapes, a sci-fi podcast by Aaron Lurch. Thank you for being here, Josh. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. All right, Sloth, I'm gonna start with you because all new plays start with the playwright. I suspect most of our listeners are familiar with the Scooby-Doo franchise in one form or another, whether from the original cartoons or the more recent live action films. It's a piece of our culture that has endured for, what, 60 years or so? So I'm interested, what was the spark behind using that kids franchise to talk about these more mature themes of uh, adolescence and identity? Yeah, um, I don't, I, it sort of came together out of, you know, the fog of my brain. Um, I think a, a lot of what I was playing with originally was was genre tropes of, you know, the supernatural, um, like monster of the week kind of program. Um, there was a lot of X-Files and, and Twin Peaks in there as well. Um, and as I started realizing kind of how these sketches and themes started relating to uh, nostalgia and specifically like childhood um, and and that sort of um, like gateway time, um, the like 
the, the Scooby-Doo of it all started feeling like the right vessel. Um, and also I think it just raises a lot of questions, just the, you know, that sort of classic, like it's a cartoon, but like, why are they always in the van? Why are they always hungry? Like kind of just getting to stretch out some of those like wink, wink moments in the cartoon into, um, you know, really kind of asking like what possesses a teenage boy and his dog to go chasing after monsters when they clearly have severe anxiety. Um, yeah, and, and so those those characters and like archetypes really hit, um, like they're, they're specific to those characters in Scooby-Doo, but they're also just generally recognizable, um, almost like American Commedia dell'arte archetypes of like the the teenage experience, um, you know, like the popular girl, the jock, the stoner, the nerd, um, and they all sort of felt like the right vessels for for the story. I, I realized I was telling. Well, quick follow up to that then. If either of you did, you have a, a conversations, or was there any concern about audience reception to the combination of? you know, a comedy parody format with, you know, uh, you know, weighty topics or, you know, trying to get a point across about something. For me, at least the, I've sort of always subscribed to the philosophy of like, I'm, I'm writing what I want to see. And I just kind of have to act with faith that there's other people out there. Um, I was actually kind of reading some tweets about this earlier today. And like, the idea of like the general audience is like fairly new like the idea that that every story has to appeal to everybody is i think really limiting and i just kind of you know have faith that the the thing that i want to say has has someone to hear it and so as a writer at least that's that's how i approach it but yeah we definitely we definitely talked about like the ways that it's going to be received the way that um, the play kind of does a bait and switch as far as like genre and um, it really plays with expectations in a lot of intentional ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that I, I was never worried about that because I think that the comedy of the play up front is sort of the thing that unlocks our access to these deeper emotions and feelings. And that by you know by starting the play in a very sort of recognizable we caught we solved the mystery we caught the murderer framework and then all of a sudden flashing forward five years they're not twelve anymore they're seventeen they're on the cusp of adulthood and all of a sudden we see them reintroduced as you know one of them is now is smoking one of them has become class president all of a sudden we we make this sharp pivot into almost adulthood and then say, continue throughout the, the play and the production to say, you thought that there was an easy linear progression to this and it's actually more complicated than that. It's That doesn't exist for us in life. Things are messy, things are weird. And so I think the play is deliberately starting with a linear framework that starts to fracture and spiral and get murky. And we've always talked about that as a feature of the play and a feature of the experience rather than a problem with the play. Like I, I am excited for folks to come out of this thinking, wow, that was like fun and funny. And I recognize a lot of these tropes and like, damn, that went deep. 
I personally love that. Actually, I love when I'm watching something and my expectations are totally upended or I'm really surprised. That's one of my favorite things about theater or, or even watching television when you think it's going one way and suddenly you're like, oh, that's excellent for me. Josh, at Typecast, we are always interested in how a script develops. So cast your mind back. Uh, tell me how you first encountered this script um, and describe a little bit your process of working with it from that first encounter to the version that's up on stage now. Yeah, I I love this story because it's it's a long story now and it has a lot of like meaningful history to it. Um, so I I knew Sloth um, when they were living in Boston um, through different intersections with Company One and knew that they were a writer, but had never, I don't think had read any of their plays until I was in grad school. And one of our grad school projects was a, a grad student run new play development project. And we were given, so the the dramaturgs and I were given really free reign with that to decide on what we wanted to focus on, what the what the call would look like for submissions, how to vet those submissions, and then knowing that eventually we would produce two workshops that I would, and I would be directing both of them. And we, when we put this call out in the world, um, I we said together as, a, as the producers of this project, um, whoever has a friend submit, we're not going to read our friends first round. We're going to divvy it up. We're, we're going to, if, if you know the person, go to someone else. And as we narrow it down, if we know the people, we'll, we'll talk about it then, but we want it to be as as fair as we could possibly be. And the first round of submissions, uh, one of our dramaturgs, Megan Clearwood, said, this is it. It said, this play, Dean Terrorbangers by Sloth, we got to do it. And quickly, we all read it and got on board. And we're like, yeah, of course we're doing this. It's a, like, uh, a play about teenagers encountering cryptids and solving mysteries in their past that plays with genre and expectation and sci-fi. Like, sign us all up. So we had a two-week workshop in February of 2020. Note that date. Uh, oh, yeah. At UMass Amherst, where we did a lot of work on the play with a bunch of undergrads and grad students. I have a picture somewhere of us in a giant theater with the entire play mapped out on pieces of paper. <laughs> um, went over the timeline, started to clarify things. And by the end of that process, you know, we're, we're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's find a home for this play. We don't want this to end here. And then weeks later, the pandemic hit and the world ended for a while and things got very dark. And in those years, Sloth and I kept in touch, um, whether that was just as friends or in the moments where I could say, hey, I'm doing this digital project. Will you write something for it? And always were like, how do we find a home for Interrobangers someday? And that was sort of been a, a guiding light for us for a while. And finally, um, to find a home for it at Company One Theater, a place where I've worked for a very long time, that Sloth has deep ties to, and to do it at the BPL, like a, a public space for doing public art with this play, is, I can't, I can't imagine it landing in a better spot. I can't imagine a better, like, re resolution to this story and this, this relationship. Sloth, you have described your work, which I'm cribbing shamelessly from your website, as uh, sour 
gummy worms, sharp and sticky sweet. What are some adjectives you would use to describe the enterobangers specifically? Um, yeah, no, that's, you know, that's, that's my line I'm using right now, those sour gummy worms. I, I, I mean, I think there's definitely sour gummy worms in the mix. Um, you know, this play is full of munchies. You know, I think it's a little, it's a little salty. It's a little crunchy. I think the play is, it's really amorphous. Like it looks like one thing. It, it, it kind of starts as, as these like flat cartoons. Um, but I think sort of like, I, I start the play like, with a note that says the fog is important. Um, the, the, the fog that kind of surrounds the characters. And I think that sort of amorphousness, you know, the, the intangibility, but the sense of, of traveling the, the foggy woods um, is, is sort of formally baked into it. Um, you think you're going somewhere, you end up somewhere else. It looks familiar, but it's maybe not where you expected to be. Great, I'm interested also, just to follow up on that, did you intend did you start out with the idea of writing a an amorphous foggy play or did that develop as you were writing and rewriting? Yeah, structurally, it really started. Well, I guess I, so I started writing the play in, in like the weeks after a, um, like a, a partial hospitalization program for mental health, um, after a mental health crisis. And um, was also like watching a lot of X-Files at the time and was just like finding this idea of like urban legends and monsters and like hidden histories, like the alien abduction narrative as like really powerful, evocative, um, like cultural metaphors. Um, like a lot of, I, I'm really fascinated with, with folk tales and fairy tales and the way they get transformed and retold and I think cryptids are a lot of our contemporary um like folklore these days um and especially the way they get retold and so like I think I was I was becoming preoccupied with these stories while also trying to like do a lot of self-work and that combination of like mental health care and <laughs> mystery solving ended up feeling very hand in hand um, because you don't always know what you're looking for and you're not always sure what's gonna be like around the next corner. Um, and so the play structurally started out as, as like vignettes. Um, I started feeling characters and like sensations and monsters um, and kind of wrote those pieces and then ended up with, you know, probably 40 pages of, of disconnected pieces and just started shuffling it around figuring out what the play was um until I and and trying to fit it into this kind of um well-made mystery you know um trying to fit the sort of you know tv structure um maybe a little bit of like Agatha Christie closed room mystery in there like giving all the giving all the clues and having it tie up satisfactorily, but I realized that that wasn't actually what was in, engaging for me. Um, it really was more about trying to be comfortable within those ambiguous spaces where two or more things can be true at once and allowing that to kind of shape your reality and allowing that to be enough for you to like keep going and keep building and like moving forward. 
I think a lot of my playwriting is, is very instinctual and is kind of very based on like what I'm, what, what is preoccupying me, you know, um, either during the day or like the advice I was given as a teenager of like, write about what keeps you up at night, um, which I think is, you know, kind of entry level, but always has stayed with me. And yeah, and then writing it just became an exploration of, of all of those ideas. Right, Josh, then, all right, so you've got now, you've got this amorphous script, you've developed it a little bit, and you found a home for it, that's the story, you're directing it. What was the major thing or things that you wanted to make sure you conveyed to the audience? What were the big things that you were focused on in directing the play? Oh, gosh, this is a great question. So many things, because this is a play that engages so many things. Um, Really, and I, I said a bit of this before, um, one of the vital things to me is that people understand the amorphous quality of the play and the what we kind of talk about as the bait and switch or just the the subversion of expectations, understanding that as intentional and the point of the play, right? Not it's not that the mystery peters out as like a as a failing of the script. It's that we are deliberately saying, we are deliberately starting with an expectation of you will solve the mystery. And we are then saying, actually, life is weird and messy and complicated, and you probably won't, but stick stick together with the people who you find community with, and this is the way you make it through. Like that has been really important to us throughout. It's also been important to us, and this really lives in the text too, of like writing the line of which ver which which theory could be correct and what is really happening to these characters and what maybe is in their heads and not giving too much away about where we stand there and let letting the many theories hold together um you know a central question in this play is was this character zodiac abducted by aliens and experimented on and brought back to earth or was he abducted and harmed by a regular adult man in the town and zodiac is convinced it's aliens and many folks in the town have projected this other theory onto him and we want to play with both right the play is intentional about there not being clear answers so a production that is playing with that sort of playing with those qualities feels important and just the idea of like how how trauma informs our memories how the, how the things we remember as children feel different to us as adults, so we can never quite get back to those things, and how they have a both a very familiar quality, but also a bit of a distanced one. And that in these conversations about monsters and aliens and ghosts, that we explore in the production a sort of different degrees of tangible, right? So some sometimes the monster is physical, and it's on stage. Sometimes things are projected. Sometimes a physical monster is then projected, right? Playing with this idea of how how real is the thing and how close to touching it can we get feels important as we play with the ideas of mystery and and memory. And it's all it's maybe always there, but when and when and where and how do you have access to the thing? Fantastic. Thank you. We need to take a short break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Boston Dynamics, but Sloth and Josh will return shortly for more questions and a spooky game. Picture yourself 
Monday morning, too early, hauling yourself out the front door under the frigid street to catch your train. But the sign says it's 30 plus minutes until the next car, and even that's probably optimistic. A mutiny is bubbling up amongst all the stranded riders, but not you, because you've got Boston Dynamics' newest invention, the eye trolley. The eye trolley is 1850s railroad tech reimagined for the 21st century, a portable, foldable hump trolley designed to fly down the T-tracks, powered by your own arms. The iTrolley is made entirely of space-age carbon fiber and folds into a compact 40-pound backpack. You can unfold it in less than five minutes, which is 4% of the average MBTA commute. And trial studies show that the iTrolley can go upwards of three times faster than the average T-car, ignoring slow zones and rolling right on past stops you don't need. Plus, there's little need to worry about running into a train car since they're so infrequent and easily outrun. Powered entirely by your own pumping arms, the iTrolley is both a great morning workout and a completely green mode of transportation. Not only will you feel like Bugs Bunny or Wile E. Coyote chasing down that pesky old roadrunner, you'll also be showing off your very Instagrammable 19th century Old West retro vibe as you roll into work early. Boston Dynamics iTrolley. Take commuting into your own hands. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined by Josh Glenn Caden and Sloth Levine, the masterminds behind The Interrobangers, a world premiere by Company One Theater running right now at the Boston Public Library. Let's broaden the lens out a little bit. Sloth, you were here in Boston. You're now in New York. I'm interested in what you think of the New York new play ecosystem. What have you discovered uh, now that you're down there and not up here? It's dire. I think <laughs> the new play ecosystem is dire all over the country, all over the world right now. Um, it's It's tough. I think a lot of our leading development companies and like um, programs have closed over the past several years. Um, I think a lot of the funding is is just drying up and there's so many writers who are writing really exciting new things that just, there just aren't enough spaces for everyone who deserves it. That's sort of how it, how it's, it feels to me. Like there's just like a lot of scarcity right now. And I think a lot of people sort of volleying for the same opportunities and then at the same time plays often get stuck in this like what I call the new play in um, development industrial complex of like just kind of siphoning through different levels of like workshops and stage readings and like feedback sessions and another 29 hour reading and then there aren't as many companies like ready to catch these plays and actually produce them which I think is actually, the, it's, I mean, it's the most important part of, of the new play development process is like, I, I'm always struck by how much better my writing gets and how much faster I'm able to write when I'm not just working with actors, but like working with actors and a director and dramaturg in the space, because there's, there's so much of playwriting that is just like predicated on your, like, prediction ability and your ability to, to kind of guess how other artists are going to interpret and like how you can lay sort of like clues or like directions for the like 
20 or so other artists who have to interpret it and turn it into something, you know, and timing and how speech works and like where things land on stage is all so different from the page to in production. And like, that's where I think plays really become good is when you get to see that. And that's the piece that is missing from so many new play development programs. Like, I think we're all kind of expected to be able to improve as artists individually, which is really antithetical to how this art form works. You are speaking my language. (laughs) I could not agree with that more. Uh, Josh, Company One's mission is to, quote, build community at the intersection of art and social change. Uh, How does the Interrobangers and its associated programming meet that mission? So yeah, so at Company One, everything we do is, we we think about it through the lens of this mission. How are we creating community here in Boston um, between the art that we make and the social change that we would like to see happen in this city, in this country? And how do we connect the plays to the, this network of folks who are already doing the work throughout the throughout our communities. Um, so a big part of that is thinking about producing, we're producing a lot in public space now and thinking really intentionally about how do we bring things to public spaces as opposed to have a, a theater somewhere and expect everyone to come to us every time and how to match the, the project with the space and the, the institutional partners. There's a ton of reasons why this play, I think, fits the mission. Um, A big one for me, as we were talking about season programming, is as Company One has waded into public spaces, I think we have a responsibility to talk about who has access to public space and who doesn't. And to, you know, queer and trans youth especially, but queer and trans people of all ages are being legislated out of public space in much of this country. and doing a play like the interrobangers in the library in a public space is is a specific and intentional choice to say that these these people these characters from this play belong here and that public spaces are for truly everyone and in a play that is so clearly about believing young people especially believing young queer people when they articulate their experience to you that's, I think, a vital part of this, is that here is a play that says, listen to these kids, listen to folks tell you what they're experiencing, and get on board and and take care of them. Because as much as we, I think we rightfully look to young people as the, the leaders who are hopefully going to save a lot of the stuff we're going through right now, um, they're also still kids, and they need to be taken care of and protected by the, the world around around them. So we've also, as we do with every production company one, we've, we have a whole group of connectivity partners and institutional partners. Um, and this includes organizations like the Theater Offensive and Bagley and the Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ plus youth, and the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition, uh, Gender Explosion. And we're in conversation with all of these groups about how to how can we get our audiences to take action after the show? What's happening in Boston and in Massachusetts that folks can get engaged in to make a difference? And so by having these organizations present 
around the production and providing resources, we're able to give our, our audiences something concrete to do after the show. The work is not done when the play is done. The work is starting there. Cloth, I'm interested, does a theater company's mission or values play into your decision about where you give permission to have your plays produced? Like how big a factor is that for you uh, in your career? I mean, I would say it's a it's a pretty big factor. Um, I mean, that's a that's a, always a tricky question for like uh, I would like an emerging artist um, because we're dealing with such a, a scarcity that it feels often difficult to turn down opportunities when they don't um, when there are are hiccups. But but I fortunately didn't have to like deal with any of that with Company One. Um, company One is is sort of the company that. Like, like we said earlier, I, I have a long history with, with them. Um, one of my first jobs out of college was assistant directing Wig Out. And I've, I've been part of their writers groups and their, their mission, their aesthetic and ethos has always been some of the most exciting stuff in Boston for me. Um, they, they've always had a clear ethical viewpoint and a determination not to let you know status quo or like what has been popular in other cities in recent years be what determines their programming and that has just always felt aligned with with my values um I know so many of the artists there and I can really trust them that their heart is in the right place and that they're there to support me and the the communities that they're they're trying to do the work for. Love it. Yes, I've been a Company One fan and a occasional collaborator from way way back when they first started at the BCA. All right, so it would not be a typecast podcast without a game, and of course, I grew up as a huge fan of the Scooby Doo cartoons, so. Uh, we are going to pitch you off against each other with some Scoob trivia. We are, this is going to be a test. It's going to be a, a revealing who did the most in-depth research for this play. Was it the writer or was it the director? I immediately know the answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. <laughs> we'll start. We'll start simple though. Soth, we're going to start with you. What breed of dog is Scooby-Doo? He's a great Dane. Correct. Yes. This is, I think this is just so funny. <laughs> um, Scooby-Doo, like, clearly, like, so important to me. I love lore. I love facts. Oh, Josh, it, it sounds like it's going to be a mountain to climb, buddy. Oh, gosh. If this was a Buffy trivia game, <laughs> things would be different. <laughs> All right. You're going to give it your best, though. Here we go, Josh. This is for you. What is the full name of the original Scooby TV series? The original one. Yeah, full title. I'll give you a hint. Sing the theme song and it might come to oh, you. Is it, is it Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? It is, yes. Okay. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? The original one. Okay, now they're going to get a little harder, but we'll, we'll do some multiple choice to make it a little bit easier. Okay, this one's for you, Sloth. Who was the original voice of Scooby-Doo? Was it Don Messick, Casey Kasem, or Mel Blanc? I think Casey Kasem was the first voice. 
Incorrect. No. I'm sorry. No, it was know. Don Messick. Okay. Ugh. Casey Kasem, I believe, was a different character. Yeah, I know. Uh, who, I know his like other main character because I, I know who's who's been doing Scooby most recently or for the most amount of time. All right, this is your chance, Josh. This chance. Scooby got his name from which Frank Sinatra song? Was it "The Lady Is a Tramp"? I get a kick out of you or strangers in the night. I know the lyrics to most of these songs, I think pretty well. And yet, <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess I get a kick out of you, but I have truly no idea. Oh, it is, in fact, strangers in the night. How? Where does that come in? <laughs> it's a little Sinatra freestyle. He goes, Scooby Dooby Doo. Yeah, I was I was guessing if it was some sort of like scat idea. Oh yep. Oh dear. We're still tied though. Here we go. Sloth, you're up next. In the episode, a night of fright is no delight. What do Scooby and Shaggy use as ammunition against the phantoms? Here are your options. Wine corks, shoes, hamburgers. Or Scooby Snacks. This is devious. This is a devious question because I have no idea. But I'm gonna guess something about wine corks is telling me that's right because the others are so obvious. It is wine corks. Yes, that yes. is correct. Yes, they have a. There's a wine rack, and uh, there's they're shooting wine corks out of the, out of mm. a big wine rack as ammunition. Well done. All right, Josh, you got to catch up here. This is it. Right. As they often do in Scooby episodes, the gang sets a trap in the episode Hassel in the Castle. So when the gang sets their trap for the Phantom and Hassel in the Castle, who is the bait of the trap? Is it Daphne, Velma, Shaggy, or Scooby? Ooh. <laughs> I'm trying to decide if I should go with what I think the obvious answer is or if I should like or if it's a trick. <laughs> and it's funny, there's a there's a line at the beginning of Interrobangers with two of them that say, why are we always the bait? Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's real for this. <laughs> it's, it's not the same. Um, what's the name of the episode again? It's called Hassel in the Castle. Okay. I love the names of, of the old episodes, by the way. I'm gonna say it's Daphne. No, it is not Daphne. It was, in fact, Scooby dressed up in a um, trench coat and, and a hat. Oh. All right. Well, that is it. We've got our questions are done. And the winner here, kind of as predicted by Josh, is Sloth. Thank you. It's an honor to be nominated. <laughs> All right. Shameless promotion time. Got a couple of last softballs for you both. Sloth, why should folks come out to see the Intero Bangers. I want you to motivate everybody to turn off Netflix, get off their asses and head to the VPL. Go. You should see the Intero Bangers if you want to laugh, if you want to be thrilled, if you want to see monsters in the library, 
Um, I think if you've ever had fun watching Saturday morning cartoons and then woken up one day and said, I wish I could just watch cartoons, but I have to go to work. I think that it, it really captures that in-between feeling of like wanting to just, you know, be a child and, and immerse yourself in a cartoon, but also like have this, the weight of adulthood pushing down on you. And I think the play really allows you to find a way through that that is fun and exciting and like embraces fear rather than allows it to stop you in your tracks. Yes, well done. Uh, an obvious follow-up for Josh, when does the show run until and how can people get tickets? Because they're going to go right now on their computers and do it. We run until February 24th. And you can get tickets and all the info at companyone.org. And all tickets for this production, just like everything that Company One does, uh, tickets are free with pay what you want tickets. So you can pay $0, you can pay $10. It's it's all good. Just we're here for you. Show up. We want you there. Fantastic. Love that ticketing model. Get your tickets now, everybody. Support new plays. Support new voices. Sloth and Josh, thank you so much for being on Typecast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Today's episode was researched and written by our student producer, Damian Vladimirov, and edited by me. Damian also devised this episode's parody commercial. The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theatre, including our season of new plays, visit bostonplaywrights.org. See you next time. <laughs>